Good evening. Howdy. And welcome to the Pratt Library. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of trustees and directors, we are so glad to have you here this evening for our Writer's Live series. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department here at the Central Library. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's author, Daniel Davisay. Close enough. Uh, he is an author and journalist who has worked at the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and three other newspapers in a 25-year career. His investigative reporting has twice led to the release of wrongly convicted men from life imprisonment. And he also shares a 2001 Pulitzer Prize. For deadline reporting. Sorry. Good. <laughs> no, that's great. His first book, Forgot to Remember, was published in 2014. This evening, he will discuss his latest work, Andy and Don, the making of a friendship in a classic American TV show. Oh, and did I mention that he is Don Knotts' brother-in-law? Please come to the podium, Daniel Davisay. Thank you, thank you. Let me ask before I start babbling, uh, is it essential that I use this microphone or are you going to, you're going to preserve this? Okay, because I, I talk real loud. So I don't need this, but I'll use it. I'll talk softer, I guess. Uh, thank you so very, very much for coming. I'm very grateful, very grateful to you all. And I want to mention at the beginning, as I'll mention at the end, you'll be supporting your library if you uh, uh, purchase a book at the end, and I'll be happy to sign as many as you want to buy. This is a beautiful building and a beautiful room. I, I don't know that I've spoken anywhere as illustrious as this place. I'll start this little story in 1987. I, I started going out with a young woman named Sophie in college, and uh, a short while thereafter, she confided in me that her older sister was dating somebody famous. And I don't remember whether it was immediately or later that she told me who this person was. And I only believed her because she was such a sincere person. I just, there's no way she would have been trying to play with me. So I said, okay, well, so your sister's dating Don Knotts, huh? I tried to absorb that. They were living on the West Coast. They were living in Hollywood, so I guess it was plausible. I didn't meet him until 1991. In 1991, we were invited from our uh, home in Boca, Florida, a little paper we were working for, to go up to Disney World and meet him. Wow. Um, he was the guest of honor that day, and he led the parade and was a sort of VIP presence all over the property. They gave him a backstage, gave us a backstage tour. And just everywhere he went, everywhere we went, we were mobbed. He was mobbed. Um, people of all ages. I was really struck by, if you compare, like, say, Justin Bieber on the one hand, super, super famous, super famous, but maybe not to every generation, right? Um, this fellow, Don, sort of like Elvis, you know, um, Everybody, older people would recognize him as the man on the street from Steve Allen. Back then, that wasn't that far back, you know. Uh, slightly younger people might recognize him as Barney, Barney Fife. Younger still, uh, Mr. Furley from Three's Company, which at that point was 10 years past, maybe. And then little, little guys would, uh, little kids would say, Hey, Mommy, it's Mr. Limpet from the Mr. Limpet movie. 
Luther Heggs, you know, from uh, Mr. Chicken, but especially Mr. Limpet with the kids, it was animated. So, wow. Um, we moved to California a while after that and worked at, in Long Beach, which is Iowa by the sea, they call it. And we spent a lot of holidays with in his company because Don would come to the family gatherings like Thanksgiving and Christmas, and he'd be the one kind of sitting off in the corner, sort of minding his own, while all the family drama played out. You know what goes on at family holiday gatherings, you know, laughter and hugs and tears and recriminations and all the, you know, peaks of emotion, and he'd just be sitting there, just sitting there. So I would go over. Sometimes my wife would push me over because he's probably getting lonely. You know, he's just sitting there. So I would go over and I'd talk to him and try to draw him out. And I'm, I, I wrote thousands, God, of articles and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of profiles of people who were better known than myself. So I was always trying to figure out how does the person get from being invisible to visible, from unknown to known, you know? How does that happen? What sequence of events? And so I would always try to figure that out when I was interviewing somebody. So I would try, I'd ask Don over and over, so how did you get from point A to point B? And, and he told me a lot of these stories. I just I wanted to hear the early stuff, the early stuff. You know, he went to New York. He, he got hooked up with a radio gig. He got hooked up with a soap opera gig. And then one night he dreamed up the nervous man. Uh, just like Paul McCartney dreamed up yesterday. It came to him in a dream. Keith Richards dreamed up the guitar, the, guitar, the line for satisfaction. It came to him in a dream. These are what happens to brilliant men, you know, brilliant women, brilliant people. They dream things, and I wish I could dream up something that would make me rich. So he woke up and jotted it down. So flash forward to 2012. Sorry to keep moving you around in time. This is like back to the future. But... I was I had been at the Washington Post and I was on a book leave because I was doing this book called I Forgot to Remember. It was a memoir of amnesia. It was a woman who was hit on the head by a ceiling fan that fell from the from the ceiling of their Fort Worth home and and struck her and she lost all of her all of the memories that were in her head at that moment, all of the episodic memories, which is memories of scenes like this one, which are complex memories. She lost her semantic memories, facts. The only memories she didn't lose were the kind of primeval memories, like how to chew and how to swallow and how to eat and stuff like that. Hi. Hi. So I was writing that book, and I was actually substantially done with the work on that book. And I needed a new thing to do, and I was still on this book leave, and I kind of wanted to keep it going. I, I really was liking what I was doing, which was I was working on books from like 9 to 3, and then I was a, basically a courtesy shuttle for the rest of the day for my kids. And it was a pretty nice gig. So, well, maybe I could write something about Don. And I started work on what maybe was going to be a biography and maybe was going to be like an article. I didn't know what the heck to do. I hadn't written a solo book ever. So I thought maybe I'll do a magazine article or something. I don't know. And then kind of we, I got to talking. My agent had this idea, this smart idea, which is, how about instead of writing about Don, write about Don and Andy? And um, I, I knew a lot more about the show, actually, that this Asian was very smart, but wasn't, you know, big. But, man, that was a great idea because I got to thinking, and I'd watched the show a lot when I was a kid. Um, I was in Chicago and either was waiting for a Cub game to start or was homesick or a snow day or what have you. And I would watch the show on TV, and I watched it 
many, many times, and it was one of my faves. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I really liked the Brady Bunch and All in the Family and the Jeffersons, but I really loved the Griffith Show. It was one of my favorites. And that's a distinction, though. I'm not somebody who's watched every episode, of the, even now, every episode of the show. I, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of it. I have met many people out on the road who know more, probably considerably more, have more semantic knowledge of the show that you've, than I do even now. So I said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it like a reporter. So I set out to find all I could about these two men who had both died, Andy recently, had recently died in, in fall of 2012. This was just coincidence. I didn't set out to write a book about two people who had died. I set out to write the book, and it happened they'd both died. Now, you know, 90% of the stuff on the biography shelves in this library are written about people who are no longer alive. That's not really an impediment if you're a biographer for all sorts of reasons. It can even help because it can kind of help people find some distance and sort of some space. So uh, I delved in, and and I'll tell you in brief what I kind of figured out. Don was born in 1924 in West Virginia coal country, Morgantown. He was of a poor family. His mother was raising the family essentially by herself because the father was schizophrenic and would would rage and would come after him with a knife and would terrorize poor poor little Don. He he, he had a scary childhood, if you can imagine, being in this big old drafty rooming house, kind of like a haunted mansion, with this literally mentally ill father. And there wasn't a lot of money in the house. The mom rented rooms to roomers, boarders, roomers, boarders for a dollar a day. Whoever could put a dollar down would get the room. That didn't leave any room for Don. He slept in the kitchen on a cot. Don found his... his comedic voice from his older brother whose nickname was Shadow. He has a real name, but I don't I never use it. I always think of him as Shadow. He was thin as a rail. Shadow. Thin as a rail. And he was hilarious. Like Don came home with his first ventriloquist dummy and it was raining and he walks into the door door and sh- and this was Shadow. He runs up and then embraces the umbrella instead of the dummy and starts crooning to the umbrella because that was the kind of guy Shadow was. He was hilarious. And he yells up to the guy at the clock tower, hey, buddy, can you tell me the time? <laughs> the guy cleaning the clock on the clock tower. That was Shadow. So Don acquired a, sen- a good sense of humor from Shadow. But my sense is he didn't make much use of it early on. He, was a, he learned to be an entertainer, but he entertained by doing magic. He was a lifelong member of the Magic Castle, that organization in Hollywood. He was a ventriloquist. He was a, a vaudeville-type entertainer. He was in a musical combo through high school, the Radio 3, and they would play music, play stuff. And he, he really found himself in high school. He became a, a, a visible, known guy. He was the class president and would, would broadcast various variety show-type acts onto the little, probably the little internal, little, like, radio station he was well-known by the time he finished high school, celebrated even. I mean, this was a guy, if you looked at his yearbook, and I have, you're going to go places, you know, you're going to go places. And go places he did. He went to New York and got nowhere. He bombed. He was horrible. His stuff was not good enough for New York, and they're, 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 they're not, they don't hesitate to let you know up there in New York if your stuff isn't good enough. So he retreated back south and I think actually plucked chickens for the remainder of the summer, so it kind of put him in his place. It's kind of, I imagine they're going from that to that. 
then he was drafted. And that worked out well for him because in the army he got thrown into a group of entertainers and the entertainers were like the USO with helmets. They would come in behind the invading force and put on some song and dance and things aren't really so bad here after all. Don't be scared. It was to make, raise the morale, raise the morale where clearly they had every reason to be extremely scared. But these entertainers would come in and try to cheer them up just a little bit and make them forget the horror around them. Don uh, fell in with this group of really polished, professional, professional entertainers who were from places like Houston and Chicago pros. They were making money as entertainers before they got drafted. A lot of people got drafted in the Army who were in the middle of some career doing something else. So he learned and he learned. It was kind of like that 10,000 hours thing. You know, he just worked and worked and worked and did lots and lots of entertaining and really learned his craft. So, and during the course of this, I didn't talk much about the dummy, but he was a ventriloquist and that was what he was most known for back home. But at one point he threw the dummy overboard and said, I'm done with that. I, I want to do comedy. That's the point here. I want to do comedy. So he went to New York after the, after the war, hooked up with an old army buddy named Lanny Ross. Lanny put him on the radio, and he wound up doing an old-timer like Gabby Hayes on this kid's radio show called Bobby Benson. Um, and uh, I, I, you can find it on the internet, on archive.org, the internet archive. You can find some Bobby Benson's uh, clips. He did that for about five years, and, and I don't think he was famous or anything, but he was earning a living. And he was working in, you know, entertainment, which is what he wanted to do. He also got a part on Search for Tomorrow when Search for Tomorrow went on the air in the first place. In that, now, mind you, the first role he was only talking. In the second role he was barely talking because he played a guy who was basically mute and was, could only talk to his sister. So he, in, the, in this TV role he was very expressive and used all the powers of his face, which were considerable, to express different emotions. So this is a guy with a lot of, uh, a lot of different skills. A lot of different skills. So he, he talks his way into a small role in this play. It was the big play of the year in 1955, I think, called No Time for Sergeants. It would have been a big book written by a, a Duke graduate. And the, the play revolved around the idea basically of making fun of the caricature of kind of the dumb southerner, you know, the, the simple southerner. It played with that idea and just got a whole lot of humor out of it. Because, of course, the character Will Stockdale was a lot smarter than people gave him credit for, and, and just he was more, more savvy than people understood or realized. And anyway, he gets this role, and the, 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 finds out the lead, the main actor in this play, is this guy Andy Griffith, who I think he maybe knows sort of who he is, but not really. He walks up to him backstage and introduces himself. These are both Southerners, and while this was a Southern story and was rendered in Southern patois, I don't know that any of the other cast members were actual Southerners. The, um, the sidekick guy to Will Stockdale was a British fellow, Roddy McDowell. Um, and I think Jerry Stiller, father of Ben Stiller, was on the original cast as well, so anything but Southerners. So he walks up to him, and Andy is, of course, whittling, <laughs> whittling, which you didn't see much on Broadway. And Andy says, excuse me, by any chance, were you Windy Wales? And Andy recognizes his voice from this goofy radio show. And Don can't believe that Andy has any idea about this silly kid's radio show. So we'll pause there. Andy was born in two years after Don, 1926, in Mount Airy, North Carolina. It's a smaller place than Morgantown. It's... Um, 
sort of hard scrabble, that's a term journalists love to use, just like Mount Airy, it's not a wealthy place. And Andy is from the wrong side of town, the, the lower income side, where all the streets are named after industries. You know, the, the prettier side of town, everything's named after trees and flowers. And I wouldn't say he was poor. My, my feeling is that his family had enough plenty to get by. His father was a foreman in a furniture factory, and he was dressed well, and he was clean, and he was well-fed. This, though, became sort of a liability because the other kids on his side of town probably resented that because they weren't any of those things. They were scruffy kids from big families who didn't barely have enough to eat. And so he got taunted and teased a lot, and, and this really, really hurt him. Um, he talked a lot about this in the 50s and 60s in interviews. This is all kind of lost now. People don't remember this, but he, he'd had a rough childhood. He'd really been picked on a lot, and you know, um, it was pretty horrible for him. Then, too, when he would go to school, he'd run into the people from the wealthier side of town, and they, there was a lot of class consciousness in Mount Airy, and so he would get called white trash and probably worse. And Andy did not take that gallantly. He, he really didn't like it. He, it really upset him. I, I feel that Andy really came into his own, probably not until college. I could talk about before that, but it was at the University of North Carolina where I think he really found himself. I was on that campus a couple of days ago saying all this at the campus bookstore. Um, Andy threw himself into, you know, theatrical productions, musicals, plays, singing, glee club, everything. And this is even more important. He was starting to develop his own... Remember I was talking about the nervous man? And that's important. Remember, the nervous man was the core of every, Don, every one of Don's character. And let me pause for a moment. I'll tell you what I think the nervous man is. You know how after the war there was kind of this Gregory Peck sort of macho gallantry, a sort of an ideal for the masculine male post-World War II. Remember, there was a war and you know, the strong, silent John Wayne. Don's character was, was a send-up of that. It was a parody of that ideal of the, the strong, silent man. Hold on. Somebody was calling me. Well, it doesn't matter. A parody of that, a send-up of that, and it's a brilliant parody, and that's the core of every one of his characters, I think. So in Andy's case, Andy, probably because of some of this torment he'd suffered, you know, being class conscious and such, worked up this really cool idea of sort of parodying, remember Will Stockdale and No Time for Sergeants? Andy, well before that, developed a sort of a parody of, the, of these caricatures of Southern people being simple-minded or, or ignorant or what have you, and he had different ways of expressing this. He would do um, this kind of aw shucks sort of preacher skit where he'd be a preacher kind of singing ridic- you know, kind of ridiculous backwoods folk songs. And just people would just... Actual Southerners found this really, really funny. They knew exactly what he was doing. They thought it was hilarious. He, he developed some skits around Shakespeare, making fun of Shakespeare. There was this guy named, you know, this guy named Shakespeare. And, and he wrote just fine, except except he didn't speak English like as good as we do, you know. <laughs> and he did a whole bunch of skits around making fun of the different Shakespeare plays, Hamlet, Romeo, and Juliet. And then he came up um, later on with this one about football. What it was was football, a kind of just uh, sheltered southern guy stumbling into a football game, and what on earth is going on? So 
coming out of the University of North Carolina, where he'd, he'd staged, this is what I was going to say, he staged vaudeville acts on campus in Chapel Hill. He created his own thing. He didn't make do with the existing things that you could do. He did his own thing. He created his own thing. And that's something that I think only really creative people do, come up with their own thing, their own original thing. So in 53, he, re he records this football sketch, and it becomes a million seller, uh, 45, uh, for the kind of Mad Magazine set. In fact, it was actually printed up in Mad Magazine with illustrations later on. And he comes to New York, and just like Don, the first time he comes to New York, he bombs. His stuff wasn't good enough, so he retreats back south, drives around from one stand-up gig to another, and develops, polishes his craft, just as Don had done in the Army, is what I'm going to say. So there's a real parallel there. And during that time, he tunes the radio and finds this Bobby Benson show and kind of enjoys it. So that's how he knows Don later on. So they're together then. In the cast of No Time for Sergeants, they spent hundreds of performances of this play together. Um, Don was a minor character, but a very important one. He plays this little corporal who administers a dexterity test to Will. And the one I found the one surviving... I think the one surviving cast member of the play, and I'm not going to remember his name, probably the only African-American cast member as well, and he's, he's in his late 80s, and I can't remember his name, I'm sorry. But anyway, he said, the point he made, he was from North Carolina as well, he said, the point is, this was not a small part. This was a really important part. It was a really important skit. This little skit between the two of them was really a, an electrical thing. It really fired up the play. So he said, don't, D diminish that. It was, even though it was a small thing, it was a big deal, and the audience just loved, loved Don and, and loved the two of them together. So Andy actually brought Don with him to Hollywood to make the movie, and I think he was almost the only other character from the original Broadway cast brought, brought west for that production. So now, briefly, I'll tell you about the second half of the 50s. Don goes on, and this nervous man he discovered created he takes this onto the Steve Allen show and becomes a fixture, a regular on Steve Allen for several years, and becomes famous. You know, in a small, in a, in a reasonable sort of way, famous like, kind of like sidekick, famous, kind of like, you know, correspondent on the Daily Show, famous. Um, and that takes him all the way to the end of the six, end of the fifties when, when the production moves out west to Hollywood, and um, and then the show ends. So he's he's stuck with nothing to do in Hollywood. Andy, in the second half of the 50s, did some quite a variety of things. He made a brilliant, brilliant film with Ilya Kazan, Facing the Crowd. And latter-day kind of Hollywood insiders, numerous, many of them have told me that they think this is just a, a role to be worshipped. It's one of the great performances ever, serious, comedic, or otherwise. It wasn't really a hit, though, and it wasn't critically particularly well-received in his day, which is hard to understand, but I think they, they were kind of scared of Andy's performance. It was so strong and so raw that uh, maybe something like that would go over a little better now than, than it did in the mid-late 50s. So in Andy's mind, that was a step backward, probably. He made, then made another movie after the Sargent's movie, which was called Onion Head, which nobody really saw, although it wasn't bad, but nobody really saw it. It was a flop. So then Andy returned to Broadway and did another play, Destry Rides Again, which had been made as a movie a few times before that. That was, uh, he, he, he termed it half a hit, by which he meant it selling for two for his two for one. <laughs> it, it wasn't a hit, it wasn't a miss, it was modestly successful. Um, but in Andy's mind, it was a failure. 
So Andy, by the end of the of the fifties, felt like he had no choice but to go into television. It was like the last option for him, the final option. Um, oh my God, I'm gonna have to go on television. You know, television. Like if you're like on The Walking Dead now, I think that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Maybe even bigger than being in a movie. It sure looks like it. Man, the production values. Or like um, Game of Thrones. Oh my God. But back then, television for many people was seen as the last option. Um, you know, radio was huge. Theater was huge. Theater was a big deal. Live television was seen as kind of chump change. It didn't pay well. A lot of the older actors didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was, it was hard work. <laughs> and whereas radio was easy. You didn't have to even clean up. You could just go on the air. But, but Andy made do. Okay, I'll do television. So Sheldon Leonard, this brilliant producer, for whom two characters on The Big Bang Theory are named, Sheldon Leonard, came up with this show. He's like, well, the hard part is finding the person. Once I got the person, the show is easy. You just make the show be reflective of the person. In Andy's case, he's this kind of aw shucks, Will Stockdale farm boy from down south, so that's who will do the show about. If you watch the pilot, which ran on the Steve Allen, the Danny Thomas show as an episode, uh, it's weird because... All right. What is this, Purple Rain? Okay. <laughs> Dearly beloved. Um, hold on. I, I lost my train of thought. God help me. Okay. Oh, the, the Danny Thomas pilot. Andy's there and Opie's there, but the rest of them aren't. Um, they didn't know what they wanted. They thought they wanted Andy to be this really crazy, funny, hilarious Will Stockdale guy and just broad, they call it broad, you know, slapstick humor, crazy stuff, him being the funny one, doing all the pratfalls, getting all the yucks. And Andy wasn't altogether comfortable with it. But, you know, that was to remain to be seen what was going to happen. So Don watched the pilot in the home of Pat Harrington. Does anybody know what Pat Harrington's known for now? Schneider. Don was in Pat Harrington's house. They were playing bridge, and he watched the show. And he, and he loved it, and he called Andy the next day and said, Ange, Ange, that's a great show you got there, but um, hey, maybe you could use a deputy. And I was watching PBS, uh, a PBS special several months ago, and that was termed on this show, the, the, and I, I'll go with this, the greatest, most important tele- telephone call in the history of television. It's like, it hooked them up, hooked them up. So Don becomes a, a, a member of the cast, for the first episode of The Griffith Show. I'm not going to say a regular. They didn't really have regulars. They didn't know who was going to work out, who wasn't. I don't think he didn't have any kind of contract or anything. He was just signed up to be on one episode, and, that, and he did. And when they watched the dailies on the first day, Sheldon Leonard said, man, that, 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 there's some chemistry between these two guys. Let's sign them up to a contract. By the second episode, it was clear to everyone, first of all and foremost, Andy, that not just was Don Good, but that he was actually the he was looking more like the funny guy on this show. He was so funny, and, and his, his body and his voice and his eyes produced so much funny that Andy realized he's got to be the funny guy, and I've got to be the straight guy, and that's how it's going to be from now on. It would all revolve comedically, comedically around Don, not Andy. And Andy was very grateful for that. He, he wanted to step back. He wanted to do straight, straight man stuff. He wanted to do reactive comedy, reacting to somebody who's funny like what Steve Allen used to do, where he'd have somebody really funny and just kind of interact with him. 
So that's how it developed. Um, Don, and then later on, Jim Neighbors, uh, you know, Hal, you know, Otis the Drunk, uh, all these different, Floyd the Barber would just do these insane things, and Andy would just, hmm, you know, just sitting there kind of reacting to it. But it was it's an unsung talent, the reactive comedy, because he would get you to laugh even harder because you're watching him react to it. And you know Andy, and you're kind of he's kind of the st- stable, sort of the rock of stability, this kind of Lincoln-esque sort of character, dignity and fatherly and 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 so you're you're kind of this he's the surrogate for you the audience and you're like oh my god and andy's kind of reacting and the way he would furrow his brow is like all right all right barney you'd laugh at that too so it was great that he really added an enormous value to the comedy being done by these other. you wouldn't want just funny people that doesn't work it's you gotta have a straight person yeah so by the fourth episode of the show uh Don is, is it, he comes up with a, like a napkin and he'd written this skit, which winds up being a skit that is better known now as the um, preamble of the Constitution skit, where he thinks he's memorized something, but he doesn't even remember a single word of it. And a, after, you know, thereafter, and I, was, I would show you these things, but we don't have a screen hooked up. You can watch these things on YouTube. I, you, know, you don't need me to show them to you. Thereafter, Don and Andy would contribute to the writing of the show, they would fill in holes, gaps in the teleplays where there was a minute or two short. They would write these brilliant little sketches. And the sketches are some of the best remembered things in the show. Um, Ron Howard made the point to me that uh, this is significant, that some of the most brilliant stuff in the show was these kind of little leftover things that just got tossed in because they were written by these two brilliant comedic minds. Hello. Thank you for joining. I assuming you are joining. I shouldn't just presume that. Um, so you get you get like the the judo sketch, and you know the um, the lawman's code where you can't remember anything, and you get uh, all these different brilliant the septic tank. I bought my parents a septic tank for their birthday for the anniversary. All these crazy sketches and these crazy little routines. And this is where I get the theory in the book, which is that these guys are a comedy team. You know, like Martin and Lewis or Abbott and Costello. They're not really recognized that way because they're in this ensemble comedy, but I think they're a comedy team, and there's all these skits to prove it, you know, uh, some of the best things on this show. And then, of course, their partnership is kind of the best thing about this show. Okay, I don't want to keep you here all night. I'll talk a little bit more, and then we can move into questions. Um, After five years, the plan was to wrap up the show, but it was very successful, the sponsors loved it. The producers loved it. The network loved it. It wasn't hard for them to convince Andy to stay. And I suppose anybody in Hollywood would have understood that it was probably destined to stay on the air because you don't take a number one show off the air, you know, or a top ten show. Don, though, by that time, his currency was really high. He had talked his way into a film deal with Universal and made like a handshake deal to make movies. Mr. Chicken, The Reluctant Astronaut, Shakiest Gun in the West. And that's what happened. But there, there's, the book tells this whole thing. It's complicated. Don did apparently come back to Andy and offer to stay, but only on the terms that Don would become a part owner of the show. Andy and his manager, Dick Link, between them had half the show. They owned half the show. So Andy reaped rich financial rewards for the Griffith show, and Don envied that. Certainly he envied it. He probably resented it, not resentful of Andy, but resentful of the producers for not cutting him in. And this was always an issue for him. Andy resented Don's artistic success on The Griffith Show. Don won five Emmy Awards for playing Barney, and nobody had ever won five Emmy Awards for playing the same person on the same show. 
people now who win Emmy Awards worship this guy, you know, I don't know, I, I can't think of any names, but like people from like Breaking Bad who won multiple Emmys or from Modern Family or whatever, they really worship Don because they know that he won all these Emmy Awards and kind of broke, you know, Murphy Brown, that woman won a whole bunch of Emmys too. So this was like the first guy to do that. And Andy was, I think, envious of that. Um, I, I have it on, I mean, I have it in the book that Andy couldn't talk about that with Don. He never said, hey, attaboy, Don, Don, good job on the Emmy there. He never, never raised the topic and Don wouldn't do it because he's way too polite. So the simple explanation is Andy refused Don's offer to stay if he could own part of the show. There, there, the manager, Sherwin, Don's manager, told, assured me that this was probably just a miscommunication. These guys weren't negotiators. They weren't business people. They were just buddies. And I think D Andy thought Don wanted like half of what Andy had, which, which I'm certain wasn't what what Don wanted. Don probably wanted like a stake, like maybe 10% or something. But they weren't negotiators, and so I think it was just uncomfortable for Andy, and they just, nope. But it didn't affect their friendship. They remained dear, dear friends. After the five Universal films, Don went on to make a bunch of Disney films, and they were hits, mostly because he was in them. He was paired up with Tim Conway. They only made a few, a few movies together, but they're very resonant, because everybody thinks of Tim Conway and Don Knotts, that they were such popular films. He went on Three's Company, and they were looking for somebody like a Don Knotts type. And they said, well, has anybody asked Don if he's available? And it turned out he was. So he was on that show for five years. That brings us up into almost the mid-'80s. Andy, it's a more interesting story, really, couldn't, couldn't get a successful show after Griffith. He tried and he tried. Uh, there was this headmaster thing, like in a school, and that bombed. There was a new Andy Griffith show, which was bizarre and surreal, and that bombed. Andy then went on to a string of made-for-television movies, which were a big deal. You remember in the 70s? Those were a big deal. Movie of the week. I don't even remember. I can almost hear the, the music in my head. Do, 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 do. You know, NBC, movie of the week. And you'd all sit down and watch it. And Andy was in a bunch of those, and he was good in them. And he repositioned himself as a serious actor, even like a heavy. Most of those roles in the 70s and into the 80s, he, he played a heavy, um, a serious actor. But it took 15 years for... Finally, the network executives recognized, wow, this guy's good, playing a heavy actor, playing a, playing, a, playing a bad guy even. And that's where you get Matlock. Matlock is a slightly darker, slightly grumpier version, and, and not in any way really similar to Andy, Andy Taylor. But it's because of Andy's success playing serious roles in those 15 years that he got that part. And it was amid this kind of wave of, you remember a whole bunch of like kind of older actors getting these kind of detective shows? So that was one of them. That lasted even longer than the Griffith show. It was on for nine years. Yeah. So Andy was a very magnanimous person when he was, had any kind of success to share. He brought Don onto the show, and, and a lot of other people from Mayberry, too. Don was in a bunch of episodes of Matlock. Um, it's fun. It's, it's, Matlock is a... I, I, the way I wrote about Matlock, it doesn't make you laugh, but it sort of makes you smile. It makes you happy. Um, and those shows with Don were, were delightful. I don't think they're as good as the Griffith show, but what is, right? So over these... My goodness, there are a lot of people in this building. <laughs> over the few decades after the Griffith show ended, think of uh, like a friend from college or from high school who you just love now and you're so close to them, even though you, ha you don't see each other all the time, but you went through so much together back in the day and in a wonderful time of your life. That's how I th term this friendship. They, they were together in these 
wonderful years making this wonderful show. They were both so proud of it. They both so admired the work they'd done together. It was, I mean, it would be the, the capstone to anyone's career. They were both just so super proud of the work they'd done and of each other's work. Andy was just glowed with pride about how wonderful Don had been on that show. And Don was so grateful to Andy for putting him on it and thought Andy was just the consummate straight man and was so honored to have worked with him. And they'd been through everything together for these years, day in, day out. They probably saw a lot more of each other than of their spouses. They were so close. And so for all those years between 1965 when Don left the show and the end, they stayed in constant contact. They were always on the phone or getting together whenever they could. They were always in touch. And um, in the final few years of Don's life, Andy actually moved back to Hollywood. And, and a lot of this was to be near. He was inspired by Don's work ethic. Don always was looking for work all the way up to the end. And Andy was inspired by that. So he came back on, he, I'm going to get some work too. And they, they both were active, were doing roles and, and dining together and whining together and having lots of fun. So so it was that, that Andy was the, the last visitor uh, to Don's hospital room uh, when he died. And he went on Larry King and said, I just lost my best friend. And, um, and that's how it was. Um, should I move to questions? What year? 2006. And Andy died in 2012, as perhaps you know. I'll repeat these questions so that people can hear them. Um, or let you go to the... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably mess this up, but Don was born in 04 and died in 2000. He was born in 24 and died in 2006, so he was probably 81 or 82. Andy was born in 1926 and died in 2012, so he was probably in his mid-80s, right? I, I knew this at one time, but I don't know. Yes. Um, so the question is about whether the rural shows sort of elevated Southern culture. Well, you, I'm glad you asked that because it, I, one of the points that I'd like to make is that I think this show was the first sort of rural sort of Southern show. I looked at all the TV listings from 1959-1960. There were Westerns and some sort of frontier shows, but there wasn't anything like Mayberry. So I think this show was this sort of timeless homage to sort of small-town Americana. And it wasn't perfect. There were some flaws in the design of it, and it, it didn't render every aspect, certainly, of small-town Southern life, but it rendered enough of it that it really, really took with people who had any kind of small-town background, any kind, any kind of heritage from small-town America, and it was so resonant for them. And it inspired a whole host of, I won't say imitators, but other rural shows. I think to some extent those shows elevated... The appreciation, certainly the Griffith show did, of, of sort of Southern culture or small-town culture. But, and, and, and some of those other shows were wonderful, too. But I think eventually it became almost too much kind of schlock and caricature and cliché. And there was this famous, infamous rural purge uh, at the end of the decade when those, those shows were all wiped from the networks because they were seen as not reflective of modern-day society. And so instead you got... You got the uh, 
Archie Bunker and the Jeffersons, Mary Tyler Moore, Good Times, shows that were more reflective of modern America, urban America. So by the end, people didn't like that, that, that kind of rural, idealized comedy at all. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, Ron was a Ron was a was a a model for the relationship between Andy and Opie. They studied him almost like sociologically because Ronnie was on the set with his dad Rance. Rance was always there, and Rance was always parenting Opie. He spanked him once on the set, and he was always being a really good really well. Say what you will about spanking, but he was it only happened once. Rance was a very diligent parent and was not a Hollywood parent in that kind of bad way. And so Andy and the producers and the writers took a lot of inspiration from that in, in fashioning the relationship between Andy and Opie. Um, they became closer and closer over the years. There's this scene where, while they were making the return to Mayberry, Andy and Ron Howard are in this sedan. They're filming a scene, and they sort of had this long conversation wherein Andy said, you were such, you know, I feel so close to you. You were such a wonderful... Um, inspiration to me and how I made the show and Ron said boy Andy I, I, I learned so much from you because now I'm trying to make shows of my own and movies and I learned so much from the way you ran this he ran the, the Griffith show as this wonderful like a big picnic a big party and but really hard working but hard hard partying too they did singing dancing telling off-color jokes you know playing practical jokes and Ron really learned from that uh, first you, then you. So keep your seat for a minute. I don't want you to have to stand. Yes, sir. What was Don like in private marriage, children? He was married three, each, of these, each of these men was married three times. And each of them had two children, so that's an easy one. I interviewed both of Don's children for the book. Um, and I interviewed Don's first wife, Kay, who's still alive. And I interviewed his second wife, and I interviewed his third wife. Um, in real life, I would like to say that Don was like, a little like Barney, but picture Barney in a more quiet, contemplative moment, sitting with Andy on the porch, just sort of calmly more serenely, kind of seriously reflecting on the day's events and being almost normal. <laughs> that Barney is more like the real Don. But Don was a fiercely intelligent man, and I think you could see that in his eyes. And Andy would say that when he was becoming Barney, he, you could almost see his eyes change into the eyes of like an overgrown nine-year-old. So you don't get a good sense of the real Don from Barney. Don was very ambitious, very intelligent, very hard driving, very hard charging, almost like deceptively so, because he seemed kind of passive sometimes and seemed kind of like a pushover, but he wasn't at all. Why didn't his marriages work out? Why didn't his marriages work out? Oh my goodness, I mean, I, I'm not really qualified to answer that question. Both Andy and Don were married to their first spouses for quite a long time, and I, I mean, I know this because his first wife told me this, that they just eventually sort of grew apart, and you know, that happens. Oh, well, goodness. I mean, it, it, it was in some ways. I, I will tell you, because Kay told me this, Don was a, a terrible worrier. 
he would worry himself sick before going on, especially live television. He would think he was getting sick, and he'd close himself up in his room and just fret, sometimes for days. And, and it, it drove Kay up the wall, and she told me so. So that was part of it, absolutely. Don had a real hard time controlling his, his I think, neurotic side. Um, I mean, everybody who knew him well would tell you that. He is a hypochondriac. He, he, he was the kind of person for whom hand sanitizer was made. And uh, you, sir, with the cap, who, who, who was moseying back there, if you can ask your question from there. Yeah, that would be a nice uh, gesture. Statements? Thank you. There you go. It's, uh, it's my favorite show of all time. I got every episode on DVD. I've seen it so many, all the shows. I just think it's the greatest show. Color ones too? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the first five years with Don Notch are my favorites. But the three other three years are good too. And you know, when he came back on for guest appearances, I think he won Emmys for those two. His, his last incredible. two Emmy Awards were for, um, and this must have really galled everybody else on the set because he comes back and waltzes onto the set and does one and guest the, spot and wins the ratings, an Emmy for it. And the ratings twice goes, that happened. Can you imagine? And the ratings go sky high. I think he won each of the three years he was on the show Emmys. I think he but won he, Emmys in years one, two, and three, I believe. And then in years six and seven as a guest star. Oh, I thought he won all. They weren't all consecutive because he would have won seven if they'd been consecutive. Oh, okay. Well, I know uh, statistically they say that he's the only actor, comedy actor, to win every time he was nominated. That's a fact about Don Knotts. Absolutely. I don't know. But anyway, I got a few comments. Yeah, he never lost to somebody else ever. Um, He said that um, he. Don, Andy Griffith said he used to crack them up all the time. They had to do scenes over, a few scenes over and over again. And um, it was a top ten show all eight years. Yeah, and it, at the it, end of the eighth season, um, they wanted Andy to continue because it was even doing really It was great. number one it was when it went out. Yeah. How often does that happen? It was the number one show when it went off the air. And he said eight, eight's enough. With Seinfeld, Seinfeld probably came close. It was pretty yeah, high rated pretty when it went too. off, but yeah. number one. And he said that he said eight is enough. Uh, that's enough. He, uh, oh, he, uh, this is one of the big things about Andy Griffith. He made the show the way it is, his philosophy. And also Aaron Rubin, a very great... Uh, Aaron Rubin, uh, the, 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 director, the, the producer in between yeah. Sheldon Leonard and, yeah. and Andy. He yeah. made the show the and way the it was. And, and Andy said that he didn't want people to laugh at the eccentric Southerners, but to laugh with them. With that's them. a quote, definitely. And that's what they... They didn't want it to be like a Beverly Hill Police type of thing, I don't think. So... Um, uh, oh, and also, Andy said that it's funny that a, a Southern show like this is mostly written by Jewish writers the first few years. It was almost exclusively written by non-Southern writers, yeah. Yeah. which is, is funny. And, and it was, and they had great writers. The writers were incredible, incredible writers. Yeah. Um, there's a book in the library here that I've taken out uh, that sh- that gets into like one third of all the episodes and uh, behind the scenes uh, about the Mayberry 101. I think so. Yeah, I have and it. I read it. It's really good. And yeah, it shows how Don Knotts—they all participated in it, put their yeah. put their um, abilities into it. And my one of my favorites—I want to ask you what your favorites is. I uh, I like the one my one of my favorite uh, some of my favorites, but I have so many. Is the pickles the one with the mm-hmm. pickles? 
the, uh, where <laughs> it's incredible. And I'll tell you something about the pickle story. I, um, according to Don's widow, she believes that he may have actually inspired that pickle story because, according to Don, he told her this that he ate too many pickles in the military. You know how they would have a lot of one thing. Yeah. And ate so many pickles that he came to hate pickles. And so she believes that he may have inspired that story, although it's one of the most famous ones. So everybody, of course, takes credit for it. Yeah. But she yeah. believes that maybe it was his idea. And also the one about the car, when he gets the his car from car. the little old lady. Yeah, well, of course, why a middle-aged man is getting his first car is another matter, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's just incredible, the visuals of that. And, the, and, all, and uh, it's just so many of them. It's um, the one where he... Um, and he was a great drunk. I mean, he, he played a drunk guy so well when he was like, you know. It's, it's a skill. Yeah. And, and, and so, um, um, oh, it's the first show. It was the first show, um, comedy show, to actually build a whole uh, neighborhood. They built a street. They built a barbershop. Everything else was mostly in a one-room Interesting. I Love Lucy. And all. You're yeah. speaking of the, uh, Don, the, 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 the back lot. Yeah. All, a lot of those, well, there was a whole back lot. Mm-hmm. It was called 40 Acres. It was in Culver City, and it was the place where all those street scenes were shot. And they had yeah. a whole yeah. army of That's extras all. to give it a sort of verite. Yeah. They'd have that people was... walking around in the background. So you're saying that was the first show yeah, to do all that? everything else. I didn't know that. The shows at that time, Olive Lucy and the, uh, Danny Thomas and Dick Van Dyke, they were all in, in basically Interior. one room, rooms, where that was in... The neighborhood, you can see the neighborhood. In the Your material's great, but I want to okay. say if you could ask one or two more, and then we've got to try okay. to get to the next okay. person. Uh, okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, just, but you got great stuff. Thanks a lot. I have to um, hand it to you. Oh, let's see here. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you said the part about Don was supposed to be the, and originally Andy Griffith was supposed to be the funny one, and yep. then when Don, yep. when he saw how good Don was, he... And if you watch the first season... Andy still has that residual yeah. funny guy. Oh, yeah. It kind of faded. And then by season two, he's a totally different character. He's very much more serious and sober, calm, which was how he wanted to be. And, and I don't know why. Uh, and the other, the first season also had, uh, what's the woman that was on? Ellie Donahue. Yeah, and she was good. And they read, in the second year, they, she never see her anymore. I thought she was really good. She must not have maybe to pay or something. Uh, one more thing I'll say, and that's it. Um, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Opie was an incredible little actor. Yeah, and he, Don said he'd never seen a kid yeah, actor with remotely that level of skill. And he'd worked with several on that kid and show way, that he made, the radio show. the way show. he worked with, Don, with uh, Andy Griffith, I mean, the yeah. chemistry, because he couldn't even uh, read it in the beginning. So he had to memorize He was, uh, I guess, a, what do you call like a polymath or something. I think he could like memorize his yeah. lines. Yeah. He was and a very, very smart boy. And one of, the, one of the famous, most famous lines ever in that show is when... Um, Don Knotts is, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Opie is uh, hanging around with Don Knotts' girlfriend too much. And uh, uh, so she, because uh, she makes him feel better, because Opie had a terrible time with the girl, little girl. So, so she tries to say, come over, we'll make some brownies and all. And they, they become like pals for a while. And then Andy's trying to get her away from get him away from her so Don Knotts is getting angry you know because he can't see her anymore and he's trying to tell her well you know you can't do certain things you can only do certain things with a, a grown woman you know you can't <laughs> you can't take her to the uh, you can't take her to the, all these things you can do with a little with a girl you know and then finally uh, 
He says, well, so the little boy says, well, what can you do with a grown woman? <laughs> oh, yes. That is a great line. Uh, I think I messed uh, it up, uh, but it's a great line. Thank you. Thank Sir. You. Anyone else? this away uh, I wasn't didn't really wasn't aware of the show that much when I was a child um, and I'm revisiting it now possibly for a psychological reason being a Baltimore City resident it's kind of nice to sort of enter a world of such innocence and stuff. but I was struck by the shows looking at it now how influential it was not in its comedic aspect not only in its comedic aspect but there are episodes that I'm seeing now that were influential in shows like MASH in where MASH suddenly tossed aside the comedy and would make a poignant show. And I was interested in the fact that occasionally there were these almost to kill a mockingbird quality poignant shows with pathos. And wanted to know, had, had you explored that? And, and, uh... Well, I'm not a television writer. I, in fact, I've never been a journalist covering television or Hollywood at all. So I came into this pretty naive about all that stuff. But I do know, and I think I did point out in the book that Apparently, it was pretty unusual to break from the format of these kind of lightly humorous or sometimes, you know, crazy humorous stories and do something like uh, Opie the Birdman, which was m almost entirely serious. And there were a, a few other episodes like that. And I, I remember reading, I just, I read this, so I know it's so, that that was really un un unusual, if not unheard of, in its day. And it's a testament to the fact that these were some of the most, you know, inventive minds in Hollywood who were responsible for this show. And one of the weirdest things about Mayberry is that nobody seems to take credit or even acknowledge among the creative minds of the show all the lessons that are taught in those episodes, all the ethical lessons and moral lessons and spiritual lessons and such. But there's one in every every episode. I don't know why none of them ever... They all, none of them avowed that this was ever their intention, but every single one of those episodes has some kind of... And I mean, I... Everyone that I describe in the book, I say, this is a meditation on the importance of sort of being, looking out after your friend or something. You know, every one of them has some kind of lesson in it, but they denied that it was ever. On, a, on a, another quick note, I had a friend call quite coincidentally within the last couple of months who was calling with an incredible revelation, not knowing that I was revisiting the show. And he left a message on my answering machine where he says, you are not going to believe this, but the lady who played Aunt B. Frances Bovia, if I'm pronouncing Bavia, it correctly, yeah. was a, not a nice lady. <laughs> and <laughs> she nice lady. fought with Andy Griffith constantly, and there was real tension there. I didn't know if that was also something you had explored in um, your exploration. I, you know, I, I, I interviewed several people who worked with her, and my sense was of this is that she, Andy, remember I was saying how he ran the show like a big old party? She was a very serious, I think, rather somber professional. I think she wanted to come to work, do her work, not be bothered, and go home. She took it very seriously. She won an Emmy. She's the one other, she was the one other Emmy on the show and toward the end of her t tenure. But I don't think she liked Andy's, because Andy was the one setting that frivolous, not frivolous, but frolicsome tone. I don't, she probably resented it. And they did. They had a chill, chilly relationship, a chilly rapport. I don't think there was any real substance to it. I just don't think she liked the way that he sort of conducted affairs on the show. And my favorite little snippet of that is that Goober, George Lindsay, one time was cussing about something or other, probably just telling a, a, 
naughty joke or something, and, and Francis hit him over the head with an umbrella. You know, you will not speak that way on this set. But they made up in the end. They did. That's well documented. Yeah, they made up in the end. Oh, uh, okay, okay, you and then, and then you. Okay, one last thing. On the pilot, um, they showed Andy Griffith as a, a corrupt sheriff, more or less. I thought so. Remember? Yeah, it seems like he's trying to swindle the guy. Um, what he's talking about is in that pilot, he pulls over Andy. Basically, it's one of these, it's like a nightmare of somebody, you know how people used to drive all the way down south from New York? And so these paranoid New Yorkers would be afraid of getting fleeced by this, the corrupt sheriff. And that's basically what happens in that episode. But you're right. But, but in the end, it turns, into, it turns into Andy gets the moral high ground by the end of the story. Yes? Well, what do contemporary North Carolinians think of Andy Griffith's show now? Uh, a student at UNC sort of lectured me on how, not lectured me, a student at UNC told me that he was a little, felt a little awkward about watching the show because he sensed there weren't, for example, there wasn't much diversity in it. Um, he sensed that it probably wasn't really, that there were aspects of it that maybe wouldn't be defensible, say, you know, in like Chapel Hill uh, amongst his friends. But his, his grandpa loved it. And, and you know, it's an undeniably fun show. Um, the vast majority of people I've run into, into, mind you, are fans. And so they got no problem at all with the show. They think it's wonderful. Oprah's supposed to be a huge fan. But, but there was... There was um, there was a dust-up over the, 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 the scarcity of African-American actors, mm-hmm. characters in the show. I tried to find where was the first time that there was an African-American character in Mayberry. And you, if you've seen every episode, you might know, but there were, let's just say, suffice to say, very, very few. Mm-hmm. Although there were the, the, those, those few were not in any way, they weren't like negative stereotypes or anything. It was, they were just minor characters. But, so Andy confronted uh, African-American press confronted him and then he, he then this was a classic Hollywood thing I think what happened was that the, the African American press probably approached CBS, CBS approached Andy, they made an episode with a guest star who uh, Rockney Tarkington I think is his name, football player. football player and then after that episode was in the can, then Andy addressed his critics and I don't mean there was anything duplicitous about it but they had their sort of response prepared by the time he, uh, he yes Yeah. In uh, Los Olivos, I think it was. Wine country. I, that that sounds familiar to me. I th- I'm thinking that you're t- that you might be mistaking this because there was a there was a, a not the back to Maybury, but a different reunion where they had like this perfectly designed set. I think that might have been a few years later. Maybe so, but I know what you're talking about. I remember that scene. Uh, we I think we need to. Um, Wrap it up. Cut to the chase. Listen, yeah. I, I want, I, I'm going to go back there and sit there and look plaintive because I want you to come over and purchase books because it supports Actually, you're going to sit in the front. your local yeah, library. Your local sale. library. I'm going to sit here and look plaintive. I've got Sharpies. <laughs> and so buy a book from your library and I'll sign it for you. Thank you for coming. We have books all of in you. the back. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>